In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. As a priest, the most difficult times to preach are at funerals and on Good Friday. Even more so, of course, on Good Friday, because what really can be said on a day like this, when all week we have been immersed in the mystery of our Lord's Passion, and we are been drenched in the and the church's rites and prayers and readings and um, the prophecies and and all of us have really nothing more that we can take other than what the church has been feeding us all week long. So it's always a dread to uh, try to prepare a homily for, for Good Friday, for Great Friday. Um, and especially this week, we've had so many wonderful homilies from all of our beloved members of our parish. Um, but may the Lord give us something. I'm told I have to fill some time. So, St. Paul, in his epistle to the Corinthians, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I think if I were to rewrite St. Paul's um uh, verse, if I were to have said it myself, I might have said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the love of God. For in fact, as we have been reading all week, the love of God is what is primarily evidenced and projected in all of the events of this week. But St. Paul says that the cross is the power of God. And uh, when Andrew on Sunday, the homily for Palm Sunday, he spoke about the cross as the power of God. So I want to reflect on this idea of the power of God, his omnipotence, the Pantocrator, the Almighty, how, in fact, the cross reveals the omnipotence of God. So, as I have often said when I begin my homilies on Good Friday, there are two characteristics of love. To do good for the other and to suffer for the other. And in fact, what we see today is that both of these the Lord does in order to reveal his omnipotence. When God created the world, when he created us, he did good. The pouring out of his own life into creation as a share in his own life was to give us his good. But how can he suffer for us in his divinity? And when man had fallen into sin and brought about corruption and mortality, the omnipotence of God recreates, and he recreates not by saying, let there be light, but he recreates by becoming man and bearing the sins of the world and suffering and dying on our behalf, as we'll see. So in fact, the two attributes of the lover, to do good for the other and to suffer for the other, are the two ways that God shows his power the power of creation and the power of recreation. And in fact, to suffer is greater than to do the good for the other. To do good for another is a noble thing, but to be willing to suffer for the other is a much higher and more noble thing. So in fact, the recreation of God in his omnipotent power in the cross is a greater work than the creation of the world. Of course, there are many practical and beautiful meditations about how important it is that God enters into the human condition. As we heard throughout the week, that which is not assumed is not healed. He took from what is ours and gave us what is his. All of these reveal the camaraderie, the fraternity, the brotherhood, the friendship of God who becomes one of us and shares with us in all of our misery. He takes that misery upon himself, 
and he becomes our companion in sharing with us our own miserable condition so that his accusers, the accusers of the divinity, could never say that God allowed something that is suffering or evil to take place, that he wouldn't allow it unless he himself was willing to be touched by it. So God, in his, in his love and in his power, he doesn't merely aid us in our suffering and in our misery, but he himself partakes of it so that no one can point to God and say that there is something that you don't understand about our condition. So this power of creation and recreation and doing good and in suffering. And what the events of this week, and especially today, reveal to us is that the omnipotence of God is revealed in his ability to embrace ultimate humiliation. The omnipotence of God will do whatever it takes to recreate man, to reconcile man to the Trinity. He will spare nothing in order to return fallen man. And this is called the cup throughout the scriptures that Jesus had to drink, the cup. The cup in the scriptures in the Old Testament is sort of one's lot in life, their portion, what is in store for them. So the, the cup can be something good. The Lord is my cup, overflowing. But the cup can also be the wrath of God or the experience of suffering and death. So the Bible speaks about the dregs at the bottom of the cup. The dregs are those sediments that flow to the bottom that nobody drinks in coffee or in wine or in any other drink. And it says, the prophecies tell us that Jesus drank to the dregs. He exasperated the possibility of of every portion of suffering, of evil, of death, of sin on our behalf. And that's why Jesus in the garden, as we were meditating last night, was fearful unto death. He was sweating great drops of blood as his sweat because of the immensity of the dregs of the cup that he was drinking. And so it has been claimed that some have died a worse death than Jesus. And in fact, if we turn on the news, if we watch some of the, the coverage in the war, we might see some scenes that we would say, well, this is a more torturous death than Jesus' death. This is a more lasting death. St. George suffered for seven years, we're told in his story. But this isn't true. Because the purer, the stronger, the more vital the life is, the more terrible the dying. See, we are already corrupted by death. As Archie was reflecting with us the other day about death. We are already experiencing death within ourselves. So to die is something that is already within us. But Jesus is totally life. Jesus is wholly vital. Death has nothing on him. And therefore, the experience of death for the one who is totally life is eternally greater than the death of any human person who already is corrupted by death and experiences death within him, his very self. And that's why the abyss of death for Jesus was so much more of a torment. That's why on, on, on the evening of Great Thursday, the immensity of his suffering and, and that beautiful meditation Randy gave us last night about the, the three nights, the first night being Thursday night in the earth, because already on Thursday night he had carried upon himself this 
the immensity of the experience of death, the voluntary experience, the recreation of God will spare nothing to return man to God. So the passion and death of the Lord are not only the most extreme acts of humiliation of God, but they are the perfect revelation of the nature of God, whom we say is omnipotent, all-powerful. Because the power of God, as we see, is a, a single act of outpouring of oneself. When God creates, he gives of himself. He pours out of himself. He is, we might say, a self-donation, a self-gift. And in the beginning, this self-donation, this self-gift was in the form of creation. Let there be. And it was very good because it was from the very being of God that it came forth. So the unceasing act of self-gift continues in the passion, but in this time it's in the suffering and the death of the Messiah again to recreate. So the power of God is manifested on the cross and in the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ as an indictment of what power is in the world. God never manifests what we might call raw power. That's not the power, the omnipotence of God. So what we see in the beginning is that God created out of nothing. God created out of nothing. And this is his power, the omnipotence of God. In the old religious minds before the Judeo-Christian tradition, it was always understood that the gods ordered the material world. They took matter that existed and they shaped it, they formed it, they provided for it. But it was unheard of that a god would create out of nothing. And this is the, 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 the bold claim of the Judeo-Christian faith that is there in the very first uh, verses of the book of the Bible in Genesis. So God creates out of nothing. But then the fall of man produced the corruptibility and the death which entered into the world. And God then is not limited by only creating out of nothing, but he creates out of evil too. That is, the, the week that we celebrate this, this, this passion of our Lord reveals sort of the the summation of all the evil of the world in every generation, of every type, of every possibility, all of the evil from the beginning to the end of the world is unleashed on the Son of God in order for him to take this just as he took the nothingness and to create something beautiful from it. So the power of the cross, creation, a recreation, he takes evil as if it was matter or nothingness, and he produces something beautiful out of it because he is all-powerful. He can do that. So he can create beauty out of nothingness, and he can create beauty even out of the ultimate evil. And so he shows us in the Gospels from the beginning of the Incarnation all the way to the end through his ascension and the descent of the Spirit that God will spare nothing to follow man into the no-man's land that we have found ourselves in. When we read about the parables of the lost sheep and the missing coin and the lost son in the Gospel of St. Luke chapter 15, right, we see that, that God will spare nothing of himself in order to chase after man, to go to the furthermost depths of Hades in order to rescue him to return him to the bosom of his father. He drank, as we said, the dregs of that responsibility. He went where no one else was able to go to the bottom of the chalice in order to retrieve man. So, this week we see the pinnacle of our Lord's suffering 
not just, of course, the physical suffering, but many of the, the saints, they speak more about his interior sufferings, the sufferings that touched the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ were much more intense and much more severe than the sufferings of the flesh. From the very beginning of his human life, Jesus knew and suffered from the very beginning the slanders, the disbelief, the mockery, the judgment, the ingratitudes, the betrayals, the abandonment, the torments, the anguish of his family, especially of his mother, The whole life of Christ from the very beginning was filled with sorrow and yet with immense joy. And the events of Wednesday and Thursday, especially for us, highlight the sensitive human nature of our Lord who came to experience that vulnerability of the need for even human love. He made himself so vulnerable that he even craved our companionship. He craved our consolation. We see how devastated the Lord is by the betrayal of Judas when he comes to kiss him and he says, my friend, my friend. And Judas must have remembered just moments before that when Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. For I have made known to you all of that which is from the Father. And then on Holy Thursday at night when when he finds his three disciples asleep and he begs them, he entreats them, stay awake with me, I need you. So the interior suffering of Christ, the suffering that he experienced in his soul, was very human. It was very tender. But of course, this is just what we experience, the the broken-hearted person who is abandoned by friends, the person whose friend no longer asks about them, the one who has left and joined another group. This is what crushes us. And yet what we see on Holy Thursday, of course, is not that he is simply abandoned by his human friends and disciples. But as we'll see, he enters into even a kind of divine abandonment that should shake us, that should make us say, how dare we say such a thing? But we'll see that he must have embraced even this divine abandonment. So Christ, as God, he sees sin, he understands sin, he perceives sin from God's perspective. And he sees the weight of it. This is, this is our problem, is that we don't have any knowledge of the immensity of what our sins have done in our relationship with God and to hurt ourselves. And we will never, in this life, understand it. We will never in this life be able to measure it. No matter how many tears we shed, no matter how contrite we are, we will never enter into the knowledge that Christ on Holy Thursday had of the immensity of the world's sins and how it corrupted not only our nature but ruptured that relationship with God. And so God plunges into the depths of our misery, of what we have created, of our doing. He enters into this dark hole, this dark void, all because he is all-powerful and able to do it. So Christ was totally life and therefore death for him was eternally greater than the death of any human person, no matter how brutal it is. And Christ is totally love, without sin, without weakness of, 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 or any rupture in, 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 in his love towards humanity. 
and therefore unrequited love, the love that is not returned, is eternally greater than the love that is unrequited in our own lives. When, when we offer love and it's not returned, it crushes us, it demeans us, it tortures us. But even this is a drop in the ocean of the experience of Christ and in the unrequited love offered back to him because he is totally love. And therefore, when, when he doesn't receive love in return, it crushes him. It is reflected in the event of the, the spear which bursts open God's heart and out comes water and blood. The immensity of, of, of the divine love that is hidden in this person who was known as Jesus of Nazareth. During the week, we reflected also and reread many times St. Paul, again in his second epistle to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to take you back to the beginning. What was the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. The first verse. In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. Creation. And what does he do in recreation? He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. The recreation begins with God making St. Paul says, he made him to be sin. And, and actually, you can exhaust all of the commentaries, you can read all of the fathers, you can... I tried. We don't understand this verse. We, don't, we, can't, we can't unpack this verse. No one, none of us can, can touch what it means when St. Paul says that he made him to be sin. The sinless one, the one who is untainted by sin, was made to be sin. In the beginning, God made the first creation and the second creation. He made him to be sin. That's why Jesus again says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now, this is not a psychological or an emotional reality that we saw on, on Holy Thursday. The worst thing we can do is to reduce the experience of God in the flesh taking, becoming sin, being made to be sin as a psychological or emotional reaction. What he experiences on Holy Thursday is immensely different than a psychological or emotional reality that we experience. In fact, again, we can't even begin to explain what it means that he was sorrowful unto death and that he was made to be sin on that night. We are told by many of the saints that such a thing is to be adored, to be worshipped, to be honored from a distance, to bow down to it, but not to try to peer into it. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, we begin to see that sin begins to have its hour, begins to unleash all of its fury on the Son of God. And we, from a distance, we begin very imperfectly to just begin to comprehend in viewing the events of this week, and especially Thursday and Friday, we begin to comprehend sin, and we begin to comprehend Christ, and we begin to comprehend our own sin only in the measure that we experienced what he experienced when he sweated blood on that night. Only when we and our human nature can begin to touch the mystery of Holy Thursday can we begin to have a sense of the immensity of sin and the immensity of who Christ 
is as the omnipotent Pantocrator. And this experience of Christ puts him in a category of loneliness that no one can console. In fact, what we see in the Gospels throughout the life of Christ is that his only consolation is the Father. When his disciples fail him, when the people reject him, when, he, when he's not even shown gratitude for healing the lepers, his only consolation is when he turns to his Father. And somehow, on Holy Thursday, he even begins to lose the consolation of his Father. Somehow, on Holy Thursday, even the immensity of becoming sin has put him in a sense of loneliness that even he doesn't find the comfort that he found in his Father before. I don't want to veer too much, but for those of you who, who remember the stories of, of Tansimira, in her last few days, when I saw her, she was in a total experience of loneliness. She was experiencing a terror, a fear, that many of us who had been around her for the years before had never seen. When I, when I see it as a sort of metaphor of, of, of what Christ went through, for the couple of years before that, she was consoled by the saints, she was consoled by the vision of angels, she was consoled by her beloved Baba Kurullus that she would see and would comfort her. And then I would see her writhing in pain and, 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 and knowing that her hour was coming. And I would say, did Baba come to you? And she would look at me with, with, with this sorrow and this pain in her face. And she would, she would, with the few breaths that she had, she would tell me as if she could see him vaguely, but he wouldn't say a word. As if as if he was saying, you have to go this alone. This is the final climb of Calvary. This is the, the Via Dolorosa. This is the moment in which you will ascend upon the cross and you have to do it alone. This is your, your final crown to be deprived even of the consolation that you had had for the years before. This is the experience that Christ shows us on Holy Thursday and on, on Great Friday, the immensity of his own loneliness. So the human abandonment, we know, we see it, we understand it, we lament it, we share in it. Each one of us is Peter, James, and John. Each one of us, Jesus asks us at every moment of our life to stay and watch with him. These events in the life of the Lord are not restricted to a time and place. But when he tells Peter, James, and John, aren't you not able to watch with me for an hour? The, these words echo. They echo throughout all eternity. And he says that to each one of us every day. Are you not able to watch with me for an hour? If I watch with you for an hour, Lord, what will you gain from it? He says, you will console me. You will give me great comfort I will experience your, your comfort on, in, that, in the midst of that loneliness and in that pain. So we have a sense of the human abandonment. But dare we say, dare we approach the possibility of divine abandonment? That cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, you can read all the commentaries and all of the, the beautiful meditations and they will tell you this is the beginning of Psalm 21 or Psalm 22, depending on the number, numbering. And this psalm begins in anguish and in abandonment, but it ends in victory. All of this is true. 
But the gospel tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just, you know, as we go around with the Agbeya and say, uh, Psalm 19, the Lord, hear you the day of your trouble. He wasn't just reminding us to finish the psalm. The gospel says he cried. He screamed. He was in torment. And the torment was he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, let us be clear that the work of redemption is the same work of the creation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no separation, there is no division between Father and Son. There is no moment in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not working at every moment for creation and recreation. So there is no division, but there is an experience. Just like when I experience loneliness or I experience abandonment from God, this isn't reality. God is there. He's just as much there as he is when I feel all sorts of constellations. But the feeling is real. The experience is real. Dare we say that Jesus, who became sin, I don't say chose, but he, he had to experience the experience of divine abandonment. He had to experience the accumulation of our experience of being forsaken. Isn't it all leading to this point? What would be the purpose of the Lord taking upon himself part of the human experience, part of the human misery, part of our sin, and not taking all of it. The ultimate consequence of sin is the sense of forsakenness. It's a sense of being abandoned. It's all over the scriptures. From the, from the, from the time of the fall until the New Testament, the experience of the people of God is that they feel that they have been forsaken by God. And at this moment, Jesus is allowed and chooses to be with us, to be with us in that feeling of forsakenness. And now he is left without any consolation. So the passion indeed crushes him in every possible way, and the as one commentator said, he said, the, the beginning of the lack of consolation from the Father, he says, is the final dagger that will slay the victim. The final dagger that will burst open the heart of Jesus. And then he will cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the last cry, it is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. So where is the justice of all of this? How does any of this make sense to us? St. Augustine, when he meditated on the Passion, he said, this is madness, Lord, this is madness. Everything that we've read about this week, we can all cry with St. Augustine and say, this is utter madness. What is happening what is God doing? What are we doing? What are the people doing? What are the, what, are the, what are the Romans doing? What are the Jews doing? It's utter madness. We just want to cry out, everybody stop. And so we, in our, in our minds, we try to apply the, our sense of justice, and we say there's no justice in any of this. But Jesus gave us a parable the parable of the labors of the eleventh hour, which we might think has nothing to do with the passion, but it has everything to do with divine justice. Because in the parable of the labors of the eleventh hour, the master had determined a certain sum of money to those who came to labor at the first hour. And for some reason, those who came at the third hour were given the same amount. And even those who came at the eleventh hour were, gave, were given the same compensation. 
And those who had come early, rightfully so, any of, any one of us, I think, would be dishonest if we weren't also upset by the injustice of it. They went to him and they said, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a dinner? Didn't I not agree with you for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do as I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? You see, the parable is not about justice. The parable is about imperfect justice. My justice is always imperfect. When I read this parable, no matter how many times I read it, it's unjust. The people who came at the 11th hour don't deserve the same as those who came at the first hour. That's just an injustice. There's no other way to look at it. Just as there's no other way to look at so many of the injustices in the world. But what Jesus says is that your problem is not that you are noble in your justice. The problem is that you are evil. You don't know true justice. And you can never know true justice because you will never love as I love. You see, what the parable tells us is that justice is not something independent from God, that we use, that we use to accuse God, that we use to say, as, as the world does, well, how is that fair that one man sinned in all of humanity Right? Or how is that fair that if those who don't do A, B, and C don't go to paradise? Or how is that fair? And that's, that's exactly what we're doing in this parable. We're applying an independent system of justice and we're accusing God of being unjust. And what he turns around and tells us, he says, justice is not a thing. I am justice. Justice is not a thing that you can possess it's not a knowledge you can have. It's not something that you can capture and say, ah, I can apply this now to even the God of creation. But justice is him. He is justice. And therefore, we will never know justice unless we know the immensity of the love of the one who is justice himself. And so, whenever we look at something like the events of this week, and say, how is that just? The Lord turns to us and says, it's because your heart is evil. You can't see the truth. You can't know the truth. You can't see things from my perspective. But one day we will. And we'll be very grateful that our forms of justice were not applied. So, I want to end with something practical from the day just to review the events of the day, and see that these events are a sort of indictment against us. Because I myself and, and, and many of us got emotional during the prayers, during the readings. That's nice. I don't uh, tap myself on the shoulder for, for feeling emotion. Because the reality is, is I can cry, I can be touched, I can be moved, and my heart doesn't change. So the events of the Passion are not meant to be emotional only. Of course, they touch us at the level of the emotions and our feelings and our thoughts. But they are meant to indict us as Christ often in his words and in his actions indicted the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the hatred in the hearts of, of, of the leaders. So the events of the Passion are, are the way that he reflects a mirror in our face and in our hearts. And he shows us how we become participants in recreation. Because the recreation takes place from not just God above, not just God in his divinity, but the recreation takes place from within. God becomes man, and the humanity of God becomes the instrument of recreation. And therefore, we are all participants 
in our own regeneration and recreation. So the passion then becomes a sort of indictment and a mirror by which we understand what conversion means, what change of heart means. So when we think about the events of the day, we'll take them just in three categories, the first and third hours, the sixth and ninth hours, and the eleventh and twelfth hours, because the events are very similar in those, two, in those groupings of two hours. So in the first and the third hour, we focused on the Roman trial by Pontius Pilate and the beginning of the scourgings and the physical torments leading up to the cross. So we see all of the accusations, the false accusations leveled against Christ, the, the bearing of false witness. We see the prophecies fulfilled that the, the meek and humble and silent lamb opened not his mouth, but stood silent as a lamb before its shears. We witnessed the physical brutality of the scourging. And then the question is, what does this mean for me? And so Christ, he's like this image of, of Christ crucified is like what I see, what I should see when I look at the mirror. And he says to me, do you see that in the midst of my trials and my abandonment, I was calm, I was serene, I trusted in God. He says to us, you see, I was patient against those who hurt me or who disapproved of me or who rejected me or who said difficult things against me. And so he says to me, are you able to bear even the small things that come your way every day? Does my crucified face remind you, indict you to bear a little bit with your brothers and your sisters? I remember the words of Jesus to the Vietnamese martyr, martyr Marcel Vaughn when Marcel said, how can I prove my love to you, Lord? Jesus said, first of all, Accept all the little inconveniences that I send you, and by that you will please me more than if you fasted for a thousand years. If you want to be like me in my passion, if you want the mirror of my passion to change your heart, endure, be patient, be forgiving. He was stripped of his clothing, he was stripped of his dignity, he was stripped of all of his possessions, he lost everything his family, his friends. And so the mirror of the passion asks us, what things am I holding on to? What possessions, honors, sinful pleasures? What are the things that I'm refusing to be stripped of? The crown of thorns placed on his head is an indictment against all of our titles and honors and useless accomplishments that usually just go to feed my own ego and self-love. His rejection and abandonment remind me that I must always look up and find consolation only in the Divine Father and not in any human person to fulfill my needs and to bring a sense of completion to my life. His inner sadness and distress teaches me to turn in prayer and to offer up all of my inner wounds as a precious ointment before the Heavenly Father who is waiting to hear me and to have conversation with me. And then in the sixth and the ninth hours, we commemorate, as we know, the crucifixion itself and the death of the Lord of glory, the giving up of his spirit. We see this unjust condemnation. We see the, the freeing of the criminal Barabbas who was Interestingly, some of the old texts of the scriptures say that his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. And some of the later texts of the scriptures remove the first part of his name. Interesting that Jesus Barabbas was the one who was redeemed by Jesus, the King of Glory. 
We see Jesus carrying his cross up Calvary, suffering and yet rejoicing inwardly for the salvation, the recreation he was accomplishing. His joy was his strength over the curses and the insults, over all of the fatigue and the tiredness. He had only, again, one goal, which was to go down to the land, to the depths of the land of misery of where man had found himself in order to return him back to God. And by doing this, he has given us a key to our own sorrows. The sorrow, the joy that God will have the last word, that the sorrows that I experience day by day or moment by moment in my life are not the conclusion of things. After the cross, there is the resurrection and the exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We see his concern for his mother at the sixth hour, behold your mother to St. John, and to St. John, behold your son. And he reminds us that, that in the midst of his own sufferings, he's thinking of others. And maybe he gives us a key here, that the way that we alleviate our own suffering is by coming to the aid of others who are suffering. Maybe the way to lighten the burden of our own difficulties and troubles is to simply forget about them by focusing on the trials or the difficulties and sorrows of others. His words, it is finished, reminds us about the complete love of God that he has, as we read in the beginning of the week, that having loved his own who are in the world, but he loved them to the end, to the furthermost, to the completion. And we see Christ, of course, the iconography doesn't bear the, uh, the realistic brutality of what happens to someone on the cross, but we, we know from, from, from historical evidence and from those of us who watch movies like The Passion of the Christ, we see the disfigurement of Christ on the cross. We see the torture of his body. And yet, the more disfigured he was, the more God was showing his power, his omnipotence, and his love. And so, this reminds us that faith is the, as one of the spiritual fathers says, that faith is the untiring pursuit of God through all the disguises and disfigures, and all that disguises and disfigures him, and as it were, destroys and annihilates him. So, the life of faith is exactly the cry of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the feeling of abandonment and yet the faith that says, my God, my God. So we see that the world's judgment is often backwards. Christ has shown us to be patient and to trust in the goodness of God that will triumph in the end. I need to leave all judgment to him. And then the 11th and 12th hours, we see the lowering of the body of Jesus from the cross and the placing of the body of Jesus in the tomb. And we can imagine, as we see in many artistic renditions of the Pieta, for example, that image of the mother of God holding the dead body of her son, which has been mangled and disfigured, and yet she knows it to be the most beautiful body and precious body of her beloved son. And the tenderness by which the body of Jesus was handled, was wrapped and was buried in the tomb, reminds us of how to approach the body of Christ. What if we, when we approach Holy Communion, if we had this thought that we approach the body of Christ as the mother of God was approaching the body of her son. Somebody was meditating, and I never thought about this, that the mother of God, St. Mary, lived with St. John for a number of years. She would have attended the divine liturgy and received the Eucharist from St. John and perhaps others. What do you think was in the mind 
in the heart of St. Mary when she was approaching Holy Communion with the image of the body of her son that she nursed at her breast, the body of her son that she raised as a child and as a teenager, the body of her son that she saw crucified and dead from the cross. Just think about that. How would she have approached the body of Christ in the Eucharist? And this is, again, it is an indictment of our own preparedness for Holy Communion. So the final thing I want to just read to you is is from uh, a book that I mentioned earlier on in, in in the Lenten period, or maybe in one of the book club meetings, a masterful um, reflection on the life of Christ by a priest, his name is Father Romano Guardini, called The Lord, where he, uh, he wrote over 700 pages just reflecting on the life of Christ. And I think this um, quote from his book sort of sums it all up. He says, the Lord's death has become reality in which all things have changed. It is from here that we live. If anyone should ask, what is certain in life and death, so certain that everything else may be anchored in it, the answer is the love of Christ. Life teaches us that in this, life teaches us that in this, sorry, life teaches us that this is the only true reply. Not people, not even the best and dearest, not science or philosophy or art or any other product of human genius. Also not nature, which is so full of profound deception, neither time nor fate, not even simply God. We cannot even say God's love. For that God loves us, we know, ultimately only through Christ. And if we did not know without Christ that God loved us, and even if we did know without Christ that God loved us, Only through Christ do we come to know that God's love is forgiving and merciful to the extent that he loved us. Certain is only that which has manifested itself on the cross. What has been said so often and so inadequately is true. The heart of Christ is the beginning and end of all things. The heart of Christ is the beginning and end of all things. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Just, uh, we'll take a small break during the uh, transition from the 11th and 12th hours. The, um, the clergy and the deacons will change their vestments. We'll remove the uh, curtain and the icon of the crucifixion. And uh, once there's no more movement in the church, when things are quiet, then we'll begin the lamentations. So we'll just take a couple minutes and, and move everything and change. And then we'll also for the procession at the end, for the procession at the end with, um, with the burial uh, ritual, we're going to have the um, we're going to have everything shown on video as well as the on one side of the screens that you'll have the video and on the other side you'll have the text of the hymn Golgotha that we'll be chanting. So everybody will have an open view because we don't have uh, an iconostasis. So you'll be plenty of ability to see from the from the camera from the screen or from. So if it's okay.